Let's start. Your quizzes are here, but of course you get them at the end. Um, that it was that you did pretty well, so that was good. So you now have you're getting more of a sense of Socrates from the symposium, um, from the apology, uh, and uh, we got you got some sense of him uh, from his conversations already with Mino and with Ion. Um, you're going to get yet another sense of him um, when you read Clouds for Tuesday, and you'll recall that there'll be a quiz then. That is a quiz on uh, the Socratic text that we're reading. Um, the Plato dialogues, including uh, everyone did get the email and actually opened it about the little bits. Yeah? I was still kind of confused about the, the second one, the shorter yeah. one, because like, I do have like the numbers at the top of the page. Yeah. But I didn't Correspond. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. numbers did you have? So the second one was six oh five to six oh seven. Um, did I screw up? It's possible that I did, but I don't think I did. No, it's just they're not marked incredibly precisely at the top of the. No, page. no, they're they, it's it's all fairly rough. Basically, the way it works. I guess you guys don't know this. Yeah, it is six oh five to six oh seven. So basically. Before page numbers and before, this is actually how the Bible used to be. Remember we talked about verses in the Bible and how they're um, 16th century and um, how chapters in the Bible actually correspond to pages in um, a particular manuscript. The same is true of Plato. These are the numbers that I told you are, just so you know, they're called Stephanus numbers and they have to do with um, a particular edition of Plato's complete works um, where those numbers apply to... Um, pages in the complete works. And they're numbered A through E. Um, every page is divided into five bits. Um, and the divisions are basically, um, they're, they're basically you eyeball it. Um, so um, A through E are um, basically 20% of the page. Um, even when I was a kid, the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is the precursor to Wikipedia, which you probably know about, um, and I'm a big Wikipedia fan, by the way. I'm not, you're not going to hear any complaints about Wikipedia <laughs> from me. I really like Wikipedia. I added a lot on Wikipedia. Um, sometimes you may think I'm getting stuff from Wikipedia, but I've actually put it there. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. This happened to me once. Um, I was, I was uh, writing something, and, and then I was also teaching it, and then I thought, oh, I should put this in Wikipedia, which I did, and then people thought that I was just getting it from Wikipedia. So... Um, at any rate, um, the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, which is, there's this thing called a book, and it's actually a set of books that you could get in this thing called the library. And it had an index um, at the back, so if you wanted to look something up um, frequently, there, you know, if you were looking up um, uh, Xenophon, for example, there might not be an entry on Xenophon, but it might be in the entry on um, Plato. Um, and it would refer you to the page, but the Encyclopedia Britannica um, is two columns, and there are a lot of words on the page, and the, the lines aren't numbered, so it would actually give you page number followed by letter, and there weren't letters in the margins, but the letters were basically telling you, A through E, what part of the page to look at, um, and then you could find it because it would basically get it down to a fifth of a page, so, so the index in, indexed by fifth of pages rather than by full pages. Um, if you ever have a chance, well, it's actually online now. There's something called 1911encyclopedia.org. Do people know about this? 
Um, it's public domain. Wikipedia actually frequently their first stabs at something that occurred before 1911 will be to this um, edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. The most famous edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica is the 1911 edition, the last edition before the Great War, the last edition when human beings thought that they could know everything and put it in an encyclopedia. Um, and the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica is a monumental and wonderful world of work of scholarship. Um, the editors had the idea of getting um, world-class people to write articles not on their fields but on adjacent fields so that, for example, um, they asked Einstein to write the article on time and, and philosophical ideas of time. So he didn't write the, the um, article on physics, which you might have expected, but he wrote the article on time. So um, that, that's just to get in, in layman's terms? Yeah. And, and also, you know, he really he had fresh ways of thinking about time. Um, many of the poetry articles are written by the person who was then probably the greatest living English poet in um, 1911, Swinburne. Um, so uh, there, it's a fascinating thing. It's, um, you can see it at used bookstores sometimes. Um, and it's, uh, it, it usually costs a lot. So if you ever see it for like a, under $100, you should buy it because you can then sell it on eBay for much, much more than that. Um, and if people know who Jorge Luis Borges is, the Argentinian writer, he was fascinated by the 1911 um, Encyclopedia Britannica. It's also online. It's scanned. Um, the scanning is not great, um, but it is online in 1911encyclopedia.org um, and worth looking at for that reason. It's just got really interesting um, information about things that happened before 1911. Um, it's not so good about things that happened after. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, you know, they thought the time of universal peace was, was upon us. And uh, 99 years ago, it, that looked kind of good. Um, 96 years ago, not so much. Uh, so that's a lesson to you. Or something, I don't know. But the real lesson is if you, if you use their index, you will find that the pages um, have little letters. <laughs> so, um, what it should, so what page are you looking at? Right, and what that would mean is the two from the top of the left-hand page to the bottom of the right-hand page corresponds to the Stephanus edition um, to page to um, 605A. Mm -hmm. Did you say so? To the top of page 605 to the middle of page 606 in the standard edition. But the point is that you can. It's actually um, they wouldn't let me do this um, once, but. Really, if you're writing a philosophical article and you want to um, allude to Plato, not actually quote him, but say, as Plato says in the Republic, you can then just say, parentheses, 605A, close paren, without having to give any addition, without having to um, say which version of the Republic, who published it, who translated it, or anything. Um, you're referring, it's like referring to um, Ezekiel 4.6, when Ezekiel sees the Merkaba, Ezekiel 4.6, whatever. Um, that's, it, it's the same kind of general um, uh, reference as that. Um, all right, so uh, you are getting, so, but you did figure out more or less what to read, which was the point. Um, and the, that part, 
um, that little bit is um, part of what seems an interesting through line in Socrates, not only in Plato, but in Socrates, which is a odd, competitive, um, and often um, uh, fraught relationship to poetry. So the first thing, and, and this is one way of talking about, you know, we'll talk about Socrates today, and, or Socrates and Plato both today, and inevitably on Tuesday, what you're reading for Tuesday is a play by Aristophanes, who, what's the thing that he does in the symposium? Why doesn't he speak in order, do you remember? Uh, hiccups. He gets the hiccups, yeah. Um, do you remember, by the way, um, a moment in the Odyssey, I was going to ask this on the quiz, but I thought, nah. I'll be nice. But a moment in the Odyssey when everyone laughs, including Penelope. Uh, that's when the end, uh, comes back and there is all the suitors sitting on the table and then Athena makes them laugh really, really hard and psychotically. Right. Yeah. So there is psychotic laughter, but that's not the, but there's another point where even Penelope laughs. When Telemachus sneezes. Hmm. So there's a moment when Telemachus sneezes and even Penelope can't, can't keep from laughing and Telemachus is a little bit embarrassed by it. Um, it's just a nice little touch, Telemachus's sneeze. It's actually pretty amazing to think about this, about the fact that a sneeze that occurred 3,200 years ago is recorded in the Odyssey as an event. Um, a fictional sneeze, perhaps, but a sneeze um, in the same way Aristophanes gets hiccups. Um, did he actually get the hiccups at the symposium? Who knows? Um, it could be Plato kind of alluding to Telemachus's sneeze um, it, and doing it in a way that a little bit undercuts Aristophanes because there's a real rivalry between Aristophanes and Socrates. Um, Aristophanes is, they're, they're both great ironists. They both make fun of everyone else. Um, that's the um, that's something that they share, um, and Aristophanes makes fun of Socrates. Um, Socrates talks about this about being made fun of by Aristophanes in another dialogue. Where you're nodding. The apology. In the apology, he says, "Yeah, people are doing this. I wish I knew how to do what the what Aristophanes as Socrates does in the play." So you'll see what he's talking about when you read the play. Um, that I could just um, uh, ascend to um, the clouds the way, the way I'm supposed to do in this play. So they're both great makers fun, maker, maker fun, fun makers of, um, um, of Athenian society. Um, and in a sense, they're a little bit rivalrous that way. You could think, you could guess that they're rivalrous that way. And maybe part of the rivalry back is Plato giving Aristophanes the hiccups um, before he comes up with um, his really great or interesting theory <coughs> about where love is. That's probably the most famous thing that people remember from the symposium. The um, people tend to remember it as, uh, tend to remember a cleaned up version, which is that originally there was only one sex, um, but then everyone was split in two and we're all looking for our other half. That's the heterosexist version. Um, but according to Aristophanes, how many sexes originally? Three. Three. And um, so those who were all female, when they're split up, they become lesbian. Those who were all male, when they split up, become 
gay males and those who were hermaphroditic when they split up become heterosexual men and women. Um, so that's how you get from three sexes, you get two through the split. It's not from one sex that you get two, but from three sexes, you get two. But there's a difference between um, the original all-female and original all-male and the hermaphroditic in terms not of sex but of sexual preference. Um, so it's a really interesting account of where this comes from. Your hands up. Oh, yeah. There's a modern, excuse me, a modern adaptation of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, a long, long time ago. Yeah, there's a great Origin song, of Origin of Love, yep, in Hedwig and the Angry. Do people know about this? No. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have it on this computer, but I have it on a computer. Um, maybe it's I can read it. It's on okay, well, when we have time, <laughs> that's what we'll do. Um, maybe, if, maybe if we're incredibly efficient today and end early, because we always are and do. Um, <laughs> So anyhow, you can see some of that back and forth. Um, Aristophanes, uh, just to tell you, he did make fun of everyone. And one of his other great plays, a play called The Frogs, um, is about uh, the great tragedians of the time. Um, and it's a debate um, in the underworld about who is greater, Aeschylus or Sophocles. Um, and uh, so, no, it's Aeschylus or Euripides. Um, and uh, so Aristophanes, in writing comedy, um, is writing about his contemporaries. And a lot of those contemporaries are people that we read about. It's very interesting to see um, a little bit of payback in Plato. Um, and it's very interesting to see what, what kind of friends they were. That is, even if they're making fun of each other, they're friends. Um, one of the things that um, I said this before, but it's, it's worth remembering this. How many, for how many people is this your first reading of the Allegory of the Cave? Um, so did you recognize it as, as something that you'd heard of at some point or another? Plato's Cave, the Allegory of the Cave, the Parable of the Cave. So we'll, I hope, look at that in some detail. Um, but one of the first things to notice about it is when, when Socrates is describing the setup, and it is a set, he's just saying this is what life is like. Um, the first thing he says is there are a bunch of people who are tied so they can't move, so that they can't turn around. That's the crucial thing. Um, and because they can't turn around, they can't see what's behind them. Um, but they can only look at the shadows on the wall. Um, and he says, so they can, they can look at the shadows on the wall, but they can talk to each other. And he doesn't do much with the fact that they can talk to each other, but it's actually... Um, a, an important thing to notice is that they can talk to each other. Because talking, that's what the dialogues are about. They're about talking. They're about Socrates going around and talking to people and doing philosophy through talking. And this is, um, here we have Socrates talking to Glaucon about the fact that in this world, people can talk to each other. Glaucon, by the way, do people know who he is? He's Plato's elder brother. Um, so he's a long, he's, 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 um, Socrates spends a lot of time talking to him in um, the Republic. And he's an admirer of Socrates' and he's Plato's um, elder brother. Um, so that's a story or that's a parable that Socrates is, is um, 
uh, communicating to uh, Plato's elder brother. Um, in the other section, the one you were having trouble finding it, finding, but in the other section of the Republic that you looked at, um, there are courses here, although I don't think in philosophy where, every, where people read the whole Republic. I think they're um, political in political theory, you read the whole Republic. It's worth reading. Um, in a lot of ways, it may turn you against Plato, but in a lot of ways, not. Um, in a lot of ways, it goes against the Mino, um, but in a lot of ways, it's like the Mino. Um, um, but at any rate, um, the other section of the Republic is the section where he says what's wrong with poets. And he says one of the things that's wrong with them is that they sap heroism. That is, that people who are very heroic when they're facing the realities of this world, that is not the transcendent reality of the form, um, but the realities of, the, of having to do things in this world, um, the kinds of things that Socrates himself has done as a military officer and then later as a judge that, it, that Alcibiades describes in the symposium. Alcibiades, by the way, is also a character in some Aristophanes' plays, and he's a major, major figure in the history of Athens um, and, in, and in the wars that Athens, the Republic, is about to come to an end. Isn't he pretty much a double agent? Well, he's accused of being a double agent, um, but that's partly because um, the tyrants have taken over Athens and, um, and have behaved very badly. And Socrates refers to some of this in the Apology. Alcibiades was banished, but then the Athenians needed him as a leader, so they brought him back, and then they banished him again. Um, he's also a character in Shakespeare, by the way. Um, so um, what... Um, we hear about Socrates from Alcibiades. Um, what Socrates says of himself when he says, look, it's obviously not fear of death, but it's probably a good thing that I wasn't in the government I would, because I would have been executed really soon um, if I'd stayed in the government. Um, those are, again, um, uh, depictions of virtues that have to do with the world of the political. That is to say, with the sublunary world, remember that word sublunary, under the sphere of the moon. Um, this world, the world um, that is everything below the first heavenly body, which they knew to be the moon, was the heavenly body closest to Earth. So in this world, um, not the world of the forms, not the world of transcendence, but in this world, um, there's stuff you have to do. You have to um, do right by the polis, that is, by the city. Polis, you know, means city. Um, it's where the word politics comes from. Polis polites is the Greek. Um, and you have to do right by political entities. You have to try to secure domestic tranquility and prosperity and make it possible for people to live decent lives. That's a requirement um, for kings for leaders, for those who are in, who are governing things. Um, and in order to do that, you also have to make sure um, that the city can defend itself. Um, again, one of the things, this is to go back to the Odyssey, the rise of cities and the rise of agriculture, the rise of cities tracks the rise of agriculture. The reason there are cities is because when you are growing crops, 
you have to settle, and not only do you have to settle, but you have to defend those crops from nomadic people who might simply try to um, come into town when they're ripe and take them from you. Um, so you have to. So um, farmers get attacked. Those of you who took film, you'll remember Seven Samurai. Um, Seven Samurai is about a village that isn't well defended, um, that is attacked by um, nomadic samurai who are living off the land. Farmers get attacked. What do farmers do in order to um, defend themselves? They build fortifications from which they can defend what they're growing. The Odyssey is partly about that. It's about um, those who don't eat bread and who are therefore marauders like um, Polyphemus, like the Cyclops, versus those who do eat bread, who grow grain, who give bread to the needy, but who defend it from marauders. How do they defend it? With cities, with castles, with walls, with fortifications. Um, Athens is um, the great Achaean city. It's not still not called Greek. Um, that's a that's a Roman word. Um, calling the Greeks Greeks is actually using the Roman designation for them. Um, but it's a Hellene city. Um, in, it's the great city in Hellas, and it defends itself. And in order to defend itself, you need courageous soldiers, courageous fighters, courageous generals. And what will happen if these people start reading stuff like the Iliad and the Odyssey? They'll start thinking, my goodness, um, this is, life is hard, and what Achilles says, which is it's better to be a living plowman, again, notice that that's a farm um, job that Achilles is talking about, better to be a thrall as a plowman, um, as, a, as a thrall to someone who is plowing his fields than to be glorious among the dead. What if people start thinking and feeling that way? Um, then they will lose the martial courage that is needed to defend the city. And poetry is so moving that it can sap the obduracy and strength from people we need to be obdurate and strong. Um, so if any of you has read the amazing book Jarhead, um, it's a great book by a guy. There's, it, there's a movie which I haven't seen um, made from it, but the book is by Jamie Swafford. Has anyone seen the movie? Um, is it a good movie? Um, one of the things he says is that um, that before they went would go into battle in in um, the first Gulf War in Kuwait and in Iraq, um, they actually spent a lot of time and their their um, their commanders spent a lot of time uh, making them watch movies like Full Metal Jacket and um, um, what was the other movie they watched? At any rate. Uh, war movies, and these were actually anti-war movies, but they were made to see them as, whoa, this is so cool what we're about to do. Um, and the point about those movies is that they were supposed to charge people up and make fighting look glorious and fun. Um, what you wouldn't want soldiers to be watching if you wanted them to win a battle, and if that was important to you, are movies about people um, in desperate mourning. Um, over the death, um, over the accidental death of soldiers saving in stupid Private wars. Ryan. Yeah, Saving Private Ryan. Um, but even that is, is fairly patriotic. Um, um, so, but that's a platonic idea. Um, that is that 
that sort of thing, what the poets do now, what the movie makers do, um, that can make emotion overwhelm courage. Um, and therefore, there are lots of reasons to keep the poets out of the city. Um, but that idea that, that the poets should be kept out of the city for political reasons, um, we looked at that in The Republic. There are other reasons that Plato, um, not so much Socrates, but, this, but there is a truth in this in Socrates also, but there are other reasons that Plato is against poetry. Despite the fact, as I hope you noticed, that he is quoting Homer all the time, um, that he really knows Homer by heart. Um, Socrates does, and Plato does also. Yeah, it seems like it's just kind of an element of their culture. Like, yeah, it like and I, I, I don't know what kind of things do we that like does everybody in our culture know? Yeah, well, once the Bible. Yeah, the Bible. Um, um, Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare in the U.S. probably some of the basic elements of American history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the Constitution, the Second Amendment. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, sorry? Nursery rhymes. Nursery rhymes. Um, things that when you quote, people will know what you're talking about. But if you quote Homer, um, there's a sense in which you're quoting, probably the closest thing would be when we quote Shakespeare. That is, as Shakespeare said, neither a borrower nor a lender be, or to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day that thou canst not then be false to any other man. All those Shakespearean tags that make Shakespeare sound like Ben Franklin. Um, but that nevertheless, people all know, um, people who really know Shakespeare and quote Shakespeare to each other, for, for um, Plato, it's really knowing Homer that way. Um, some of the Homer that's quoted, by the way, is not, you may or may not have noticed, is not from the Iliad or the Odyssey but from lost poems of Homer. So, the only fr so, so if you actually were to get um, uh, the book, which you can get of complete Homeric fragments, a lot of those fragments are actually from Plato. That is, we, they exist only because Socrates quoted them. Um, and the poem that they came from is gone, but those lines um, are preserved. Um, so if you try to look those poems up, all you'll see is those poems out of the context of the dialogue that quotes them, or those lines out of the dialogue that quotes them. Yeah? Doesn't this give us proof that Homer was, in fact, the, well, did exist and also perhaps was the author of both works? Well, no, it certainly gives us proof that by um, 400 BCE, everyone thought Homer existed and was the author of both works as well as of other things. Um, it certainly gives us proof of that, that Homer as a cultural um, entity, um, as um, a figure who, as, as a legendary author, um, was certainly accepted by then, um, maybe about 300 years or 400 years after he would have lived. Um, the people who are skeptical of Homer's existence, um, they're not skeptical of the idea that people thought Homer was real. Um, by 600 BCE or so. Um, they just think they were wrong. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it, and they think they were wrong on anthropological grounds. That is that oral poetry just doesn't work that way. Um, and that Plato and his um, colleagues are thinking of Homer um, as the way they think of poets who write rather than poets who, are, who speak. Um, 
at any rate, in a way, as I've said over and over again, it only matters, what matters really is reception. It's, it's as we economists say, not a supply side, but a demand side um, culture, which is that um, if they think Homer exists, it's because they um, are finding a unity in the Iliad and the Odyssey, which they ascribe to the unity of the single intelligence. And all we have to say is um, that intelligence is what the books show. Um, and whether empirically and biographically there was one person who put it all together, at some level there had to be. What that person put together, we may never know. That is, how much of what was put together was already um, um, put together as, as large chunks composed by others. But whoever did it put it together into a single unified intelligence. And do we really have to look behind that? You know, I think it's no. I think the answer is you don't have to look behind it. You can simply see that unified intelligence as the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, um, pure and simple. Nothing is lost by doing it that way. Um, okay, if you look at an earlier dialogue like the Ion, and remember here that earlier is, this is a philosophical reconstruction. That is, just to repeat a little bit what I said on Tuesday, um, you can see that there are things that Socrates says early on, or there are things that Socrates says in a lot of dialogues that are mainly negative. That is, they're mainly undercutting what other people say, rather than his saying himself, here's what I believe. Later on, you have Socrates saying what he actually thinks the world of forms looks like, what the forms are, what the form of forms is, and so on. Now, it's possible, but it's extremely hard to tell yourself this story or to come up with a plausible story, that Socrates began as someone who believed in a whole lot of um, metaphysical entities, but slowly pared that down so that at the end of his life he was simply skeptical. One reason not to believe that is he doesn't say that. Um, and he doesn't say, well, I used to believe in all these things, but I slowly came to disbelieve in them. Um, when he gives his autobiography in um, the Apology, he doesn't talk about that stuff. All he says is that he's like a gadfly and the state is like a horse, and that the gadfly keeps the horse um, alert. Um, it may be a bad, you know, horses don't like gadflies, but gadflies actually do them a service. That idea, by the way, you know, gadfly has become a cliche, that's his metaphor. It's not that he's using a metaphor that other people have used. He's not saying, you know, I'm just a gadfly. He's saying, think about a horse and think about the flies that bother horses and how, in a way, that's good for horses. That's what I think I am. So that very famous um, cliche of the gadfly, that's actually Socrates' invention. So there he is at the end of his life, um, about to be executed. And it's worth reading, by the way, the whole series of dialogues um, that end in his death. Um, that is, after the apology. Um, the first of the series is um, the, it's actually the Euthyphro, followed by the Mino, which we read. 
Um, and who gets angry at him in the Mino? Do you remember? Anyone? You who must take a quiz? Um, wait. Good. They all do, though. I mean, yeah, that's actually not going to... Yes, good. That's not going to work, by the way, as answers to quizzes anymore. His name starts with an A, because that's like you have a 50-50 chance of being right, if that's all you have to say. Um, yeah, Anitus or Anitus. Um, so he gets angry at Socrates, and then he becomes one of his accusers um, in the Apology. After Socrates is sentenced to death in the Apology, um, one of the things that people have predicted is he isn't going to show up for his trial, but is actually going to escape while um, um, before he's put on trial. Um, but he does show up, and he says, I know you're surprised to see me here and that I didn't just skedaddle at midnight, um, but I didn't. Um, here I am, and um, now when you ask what the other penalty is, I think I should be supported like an athlete for the rest of my life. <laughs> okay, I'll pay 50 cents. Um, and then when he's sentenced to death, um, he then um, puts his affairs in order and goes to prison. And in prison, his friends um, ask him, um, they say, look, we've talked to the guards. They're willing to let you escape. Um, we've bribed them. We've collected some money. You can escape. Um, this is a miscarriage of justice, and you should go. And he says no, and he refuses. Um, he then gives another version of his autobiography in the dialogue called The Fido. Um, and um, he then drinks hemlock and dies. And it's an incredibly moving thing. Um, people weep reading this. But you can sort of read... The story, it's often published in a book called The Last Days of Socrates, that takes you from the youth of, through the, the dialogues of the Euthyphro, the Mino, um, the Apology, the Crito, and the Fido. And if you read through those, um, you'll get basically the, the last couple of weeks of his life um, and what he talked about then. Um, but those were written by Plato at different times. So, not, so a lot of the stuff in the Fido. Um, there's no hint of it in the Apology. And um, the Apology does seem to be more or less accurate to what Plato was taking down um, at the trial. And Socrates even points him out. Um, in the Phaedo, um, Plato hints very strongly that this is his own philosophy by having Socrates notice that Plato is sick and not there. Um, Plato is ill. Um, so the whole point is Plato is, is publishing a dialogue that he has people in the dialogue say he wasn't present at. And that's his way of saying, this is me. Um, Plato also said, or possibly said, um, some of his letters survive. Um, some of them people aren't sure whether they're, they're really his or not. But in a letter that might be his, what he said about Socrates um, was... Um, he, he, what, he, well, what he said about himself is, no one will ever see any philosophy written by me. I will never publish any philosophy. Um, you will never see philosophy written by Plato. Um, what you may see instead is Socrates um, talking, a beautiful and new Socrates talking. Um, yeah. It's partly a means of protecting himself, um, but also partly um, a way of um, enlisting the early Socrates 
into consistency with what he's saying. That is to say, um, he revered Socrates. Um, he also liked the idea. Okay, so let's 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 that it's a good question, and there's a let's attack it from another angle. So. Um, what the apology gives us strong evidence for, and what some other dialogues give us strong evidence for, is that Socrates um, did not talk in the great mythological ways or didn't give the, the positive metaphysical claims that you will find in later Plato. Um, if you look, so it really gives us a very, very good way of ordering the dialogues and of saying the apology is an early dialogue and basically saying if dialogues don't talk about the world of forms, then they're early. And if they do talk about the world of forms, then they're at least middle. That's Plato speaking. That is, you can, you can um, do a sieve of the dialogues. You can... You can um, uh, sort them out between those where Socrates is the the, 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 the dialogues where Socrates is the main speaker. You can sort out those dialogues between those which talk about um, what things are really like and those that don't but simply say, no, stuff isn't like this. And they're consistent with each other as far as philosophy goes, but they're not consistent with each other in a way as far as autobiography goes. Um, because what you get is an autobiographical dialogue which says nothing about the world of forms, that is the apology. Um, it says nothing about the world of forms, um, and yet it's Socrates a week before he dies. Um, then you get later dialogues, what I'm calling later dialogues, which do talk about the world of forms, and Socrates says, yes, when I was a young man I realized there must be forms. Um, but he hasn't said that in the Apology, and so those dialogues where he says, when I was young, I realized there must be forms, are probably written later. We can say with, with as much certainty as you can say anything, as you can reconstruct anything, that they were written later. You know, the reason I'm being hesitant is if any of you has seen um, Arcadia, the Tom Stoppard play, um, or read it, um, part of that play is about how easy it is to reconstruct wrong. Um, that is how you can misread the evidence. It's quite a brilliant play about misreading um, evidence um, and um, not misreading it majorly, but misreading it um, in interesting ways. Um, so, nevertheless, it seems pretty clear that early Socrates is Socrates the gadfly, and he describes himself in the Apology. He says, I meet people, they claim to know stuff. Um, the Delphic Oracle whom I revere um, because I'm not an atheist, whether he is or not is another question, um, but, it, but um, on some level he's saying, I certainly wouldn't claim that I knew that God did not exist. So the Delphic Oracle said, I knew more than anyone else. I found that ridiculous because I knew nothing. Um, so I thought to myself, what can that possibly mean? Oh, it must be that the Oracle is taking me as an example because the one thing about me is that I know I know nothing, and maybe that's what makes me um, an example of, of the absolute limit of human knowledge, is to realize that, that we don't know anything. Um, that's as much as humans can know, and that much I do know. 
But at first, I just doubted it, and I said, I tried to disprove the oracle. So I would go up to people, and I would say, you know, oh, you're a dude talking about virtue. I don't know what virtue is. Tell me what it is. And um, then Nino would start telling me about virtue, but it just didn't sound right. Yeah. I find that hard to believe. Looking, reading these, he doesn't actually think these people know what virtue is. No, but he says that in the Apology also. That is to say, he says that first... You know, and obviously there's something coy. And the thing about Socrates, I'm glad you said that. The thing about Socrates is what is the major fact about him um, as a character is what's what's come to be known as Socratic irony. And what Socratic irony is, it's 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 what I mentioned last time. It's that Columbo-like, um, you're so much smarter than me. Let me just ask you. Um, there's actually a. a great book called The Art of Cross-Examination, which was um, a standard text in law schools at the beginning of the century or at the end of the 19th century, um, which, is, which is basically showing prosecutors and defense attorneys who um, question like Socrates. That is like, I just, there's just one little thing I don't get. Um, you know, what you're saying makes perfect sense. There's just this, I guess I have no, for, I have one question. There's just one thing that's bothering me. Um, so Socrates is always the one thing that's bothering me mode. And that's irony. And there's some people who think it's cruel and vicious. Um, he kind of um, accepts that in the Apology. Um, what he says is, so, th so is this true or ironic even this part? I don't know. But what he, what he says by way of irony is, um, I tried to prove that the oracle was wrong by um, talking to people who knew more than I did. Except they didn't. Now, probably on some level, that has to be right. That is, on some level, it had to be the case that he was dissatisfied with what he had learned once he started thinking about what he'd learned. He started feeling dissatisfied by it. Do people know how Stendhal became a novelist? You know, Stendhal is one of the maybe four great French novelists, Red in the Black and the Charterhouse of Parma. Um, have you heard of him? Red and the Black, is that a, not a familiar title? Or the Charterhouse Department? Okay, so you want to read a great French novelist, read those two novels, um, early 19th century. Um, he was in high school, and he was taught in math that negative 1 times negative 1 equals 1. And he said to his math teacher, why? That makes no sense. Can you explain it to me? And the math teacher said, shut up, kid. And he said, oh. no, really. How can, how can multiplying two negatives give you a positive number? And the math teacher couldn't answer him. And he said, these people don't know what they're talking about. They're just learning by rote. And he um, got disgusted, gave up all mathematical study, and became a novelist. Um, it's actually not that easy to prove that a negative times a negative equals a positive. Um, and it's not that hard once you know the proof, but it's not that easy. Um, and so Socrates probably had some such experience. That is, that people were telling him stuff, and he started wondering, can that really be true? And he started, I mean, you've all done this, right? Um, you've had philosophical arguments with your parents, and then you realize, wait, no, they're wrong. Um, it's, it's often hard to prove things that might be true but are, and seem self-evident, but aren't necessarily. Yeah, but it's also the case that stuff that you were told was true, you start realizing, wait a second, that's not true. Um, so Socrates did that, and then um, he probably, well, he invented this mode of 
not talking for victory, but talking to give people enough rope to hang themselves. And he even says in the apology that whenever he met someone who was full of himself, he would talk to that person. Um, because after a while, he just wanted basically to show them up. And he says that. And he says, you know, and people used to come watch. And naturally, the people who I was talking to would um, get PO'd that they were being shown up. Um, it's very disagreeable. People love to see someone humiliated. I was always humiliating these people. They found it very disagreeable. And then again, part of the drama of the apology, it's, it's worthwhile reading the platonic dialogues both as philosophy and as drama. They are dialogues. Um, they are beautiful and new Socrateses, some of them, that Plato is writing lines for. Um, part of the pleasure of that is looking at them dramatically and noticing that in the Apology, Socrates' accusers, Miletus, is willing to talk, but the others really don't want to talk. They've lost too many arguments with him. And Socrates says, no, the law compels you to talk. You, this is the one dialogue. You screwed up by having all those other dialogues with me and looking like a moron. I don't blame you. He doesn't say this, but that's implicit. I don't blame you for not wanting to talk now in front of all these judges, but you have to. That's what the law says. Yeah. Couldn't some of these listeners kind of see where Socrates is coming from and then kind of well, mold their... Hold their tongue? Not hold their tongue, but like mold their response because it seems like you could get around it. Well, they... so one, yeah. I mean, one of the great things about Plato is when you start reading Plato, which you guys are doing, the famous dialogues, and they are the famous dialogues because they're the, they're the ones that are um, most striking at first and um, get you right into the issues um, from the start. But if you read more of Plato, what you'll find is that Socrates does talk to shrewder and shrewder people. And, um, for example, something I'm sure you've noticed already is he's saying, and if we want health, who do we talk to? Do we talk to the general or to the doctor? Well, Socrates, I'm not sure. Well, surely when you want to know what to eat, you talk to the dietitian. So when you know, want to know um, how to be healthy, we talk to the doctor, do we not? Yes, Socrates, that seems to me very evident. And <laughs> when we want to know about bricklayers, do we talk to the doctor or to the builder? Well, Socrates, I don't know about you, but I should certainly talk to the builder. <laughs> and I should, too. I agree with you. So there are moments like that, you know, where, where um, he's making a point. And, um, but later, in later dialogues, he'll talk to much smarter interlocutors. Um, and he'll say something like, um, so when we talk, when we want to know about health, do we, or when we want to know about basket weaving, will we talk to the bricklayer or to the weaver? And... Um, people will um, respond to him saying, Socrates, why do you keep talking about manual labor as though that's going to tell us anything about these intellectual issues that we're talking about? And um, they start parodying him. Um, and those dialogues are actually pretty thrilling. Um, this, the smarter the person Socrates is talking to, um, the more thrilling the back and forth is. It's not what, what we see is Socrates, in these dialogues, is Socrates kind of mopping the floor with his interlocutors. Um, but the really great 
um, dialogues for non-novices in Plato are the ones where Socrates actually um, is pushed back really hard and where um, we go to another level of struggle. It's when Moriarty comes in against Socrates' homes rather than just, you know, the red-headed league or whatever it is. Um, Socrates does have worthy antagonists, and as I say, he loses some of the dialogues, um, especially the Parmenides. Um, in the Parmenides, he, for example, just to tell you, since this has to do with forms also, he says, so if... Um, so, he says, what I figured was there must be a world of forms because if we see a chair um, and we see another chair, we recognize them both as chairs, that makes them a chair. That, then there must be a form of chair, does it not? And Parmenides says, yeah, I used to think that way. And Socrates says, and so with a man, and so with a table, and so with all things. Um, and Parmenides says, really? And what about the form of a chair leg? Do you think there's a form of a chair leg as well as the form of a chair? And Socrates says, um, uh, yeah, I guess. And Parmenides says, really? And what about the form of the splinters in the chair leg? Are there forms of splinters that somehow in the world of forms are attached? And finally he says, and what about mud? Um, does every single particle of mud um, belong to the form of mud? Or is mud a large sludge like, in, like what's flowing into the Danube? And is there a form of mud in the sky? And Socrates says, look, I'm 18. I'll get back to you on this. Um, <laughs> but the point is that, that Socrates gives a very um, clear exposition of his doctrine of forms in Parmenides. And Parmenides says it's not going to work. And Socrates loses that dialogue. Um, and it's really interesting to see him losing. It's really interesting to see him winning, and that's what you first get taught when you get taught Plato, but later on you see him losing. Have you read some of those? You're nodding. No, okay. Um, Actually, talking about the, uh, Socrates, or, or that, talking about Plato, especially the apology as drama, it was really interesting just reading it as a story because you see Socrates' tone change as he's, as he's talking, talking, and he starts out, like, with his usually reasonable and kind of a bit pedantic um, speech. But then when he start, turns to Melitos, he gets really aggressive and kind of frantic. Yeah, yeah, and, that's, and remember that he's a poet. Mm -hmm. So this gets us back, and going back to the thing that Emily was asking, this, this gets us back to um, his competition with the poet. So an early dialogue is the Mino. Um, so remember that Mino is not the, I mean, not the Mino, excuse me, the Ion. Um, Ion is not that smart a guy, it would seem. And that's part of the point, is that what he is is rhapsodic. What he is is a great interpreter of Homer. And what he basically says is, I do Homer. I can't really do other poets. But the reason for that is all these other poets, are not, they're not as good as Homer. And Socrates says, well, but a doctor can um, look at different diseases, so how come you can't look at different poets? Um, and Mino says, yeah, Mino's actually quite charming and candid. He says, yeah, you know, Socrates is kind of weird. Maybe you can explain it to me. Um, but, mean, but, excuse me, I keep saying Mino. Ion um, has um, this view that, all right, let me, let me put this as a question. Let me be Socratic. Um, you who know so much about these things, um, <laughs> please tell me because I just, there's one thing I don't understand about that dialogue. Um, what is it, what idea that Ion has is Socrates, um, uh, 
refuting? What is the idea that gets refuted in that dialogue? Emily? Well, I mean, the, the steadfast is that you can't judge that one poet is the best poet. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So, so he does refute that idea. Um, he also says, if you were capable of, um, if you were expert in poetry, you would be able to do all these other poets too. Somehow you can only do Homer, which suggests that poetry is unlike, well, I already said, unlike being a doctor or a bricklayer or a builder. Um, that somehow being a poet or being a rhapsode, being a reciter of poetry, because that's what Ion is, um, is unlike these other things. Now, go back to the apology for a second. Do you remember what Socrates said about the poets in the apology? What struck him when he first, yeah? That they, that they are not good interpreters of their own work. Yeah, this is, this is the beginning of 2,400 years of literary criticism um, that he's saying there that if you want, I mean, you've all learned this if you're English majors at any rate or probably in high school, that, um, well, this is, the, this is the beginning of what Robert Frost will later say, which is someone said, what's the meaning of one of his poems? And he said, if I could have said it any better, I would have. But the idea is that poets are not privileged interpreters of their own work. If you read a poem, you might realize that the poem says more than the poet thought it said. Um, you might realize that when the poet says, no, this is what I meant by it, you know that Annie Hall scene where Marshall McEwen tells, <laughs> tells um, um, Woody Allen that he's wrong in his interpretation? Had Woody Allen been reading Plato, he would have said, no, you wrong. Um, I know what you're saying better than you do. But Socrates said that was obvious about the poets, that they wrote this fantastic poetry and I said, here's what it means. And they said, nah, it means something much less interesting than that. Um, and so the first thing he's struck by is how poets don't understand their own poems. Emily. Um, I think that Thomas is defending love like classic poetry where, or chance poetry. Right. Where the poet embraces the idea that you can't control the situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, although it's a different version of chance, but yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's a John Cagey thing, too. Um, yeah. So now he's talking to Ion, and he's noticing that Ion also doesn't have, although Ion is a fantastically great performer, he's not expert in what this translation calls the art of poetry, what other translations will sometimes call the craft of poetry. Um, that is, um, the, the word art as it's used in the ion is, in Greek, it's techne, where we get our word technical. And it means um, skill, um, the skill of poetry, like the skill of being a physician or a bricklayer or a basket weaver or whatever. And so what he's basically saying is, um, okay, it seems that being a poet is not a skill, or being a reciter of poetry is not a skill the way being a builder is a skill. So that, yeah. So how does that explain how writers can practice and get better? Well, there's, um, that's not an issue that he takes up. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think that he he wouldn't have trouble answering that, which mm-hmm. is that there's a skill component to it. Um, you know, it can also be, you know, why, why, why does um, a poet's handwriting get better over the course of the decades um, or worse? But, mm-hmm. I mean, there are skills that go into writing poetry, but nevertheless what makes the poem, um, what's central to it seems not to be a skill, partly because, and there are various reasons for this. Why is virtue not a skill according to our, well, yeah, it's, it's worth saying this. Um, what's the proof in the Mino that virtue isn't knowledge? Isn't knowledge of the good, That for there example. are no teachers of virtue. That there are no teachers of virtue. Um, that the fact that it can't be taught means that it's not like, again, like bricklaying. Let's just take that as our, as our um, other possible example. Um, you can teach bricklaying, you can't teach virtue. You can teach geometry, that's the great example in the Mino. You can teach geometry, you can't teach virtue. How do we know we can't teach virtue? Because look at all these great people who have completely unvirtuous children. Um, and that's what um, makes um, an, um, Anatus so angry, is the idea that Socrates is dissing um, the parents of these dissolute children. Um, not only the children, but their parents. Um, so now go back to the ion, and the question is, can you teach poetry? Um, and the answer is basically, no, you can't. Um, that poetry comes from inspiration, ion and Socrates will agree, rather than from teaching. And Socrates, remember that the issue in the Republic is that um, the problem with poetry is that in fact is that it infects there's several problems with it but one problem with it is that it infects people with emotions that sap their will and their courage it makes them all emotional and that's not a good thing um, there are lots of parodies on this where tough tough guys are crying um, in movies um, so it do, it does this to people um, that's what's wrong with poetry. That idea that poetry infects people with emotion, how does that appear in the ion? Yeah? Well, I guess the final conclusion is that poets are divine, mm-hmm. which I guess is flattering, but at the same time it removes their agency uh-huh. and their you know, ability to do this themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's the idea of the muse. Um, poets are inspired um, by the muses, by the gods, by God. They're like they're like oracles. Um, the way the oracle um, this will matter later on, but the way um, as some of you probably know, the way the oracles um, did their prophecy is essentially they would take drugs. Um, they would go into um, a completely ecstatic, where the word ecstatic means to stand out of yourself. That's the literal meaning of the word ecstatic, standing outside. They would go into ecstatic states um, because they would burn various substances, um, and they would, go, they, they would go into these trances where they said things and they would often not know what they were saying. Um, and that was the God speaking through them. So Socrates explicitly compares the rhapsode and also the poet to the um, priest or priestess at Delphi. 
um, to, and we'll see such a figure, by the way, in Virgil, um, who will go into a similar ecstatic mode um, in order to give Aeneas information. Um, so that ecstatic moment is one of inspiration by the god or by the muse or by the gods or, or um, whatever you want to say. Um, that ecstatic moment is a moment which is not a moment of techne, of craft, of knowing a skill and using it. Um, it's a moment rather of inspiration where our word inspiration, I mentioned this to you before, means to breathe in. Um, the poet Shelley at the end of his fantastically great essay, The Defense of Poetry, says that poets are the hierophants of an unapprehended inspiration. That is, they are the priests. They are, the, they are like the Delphic, the Pythian um, priests of an inspiration that they themselves don't apprehend. Um, they are the trumpets that sing to battle and know not what they inspire. So Shelley's um, idea there is that poets are the trumpets by which the muse or the gods, I mean, not literally, but he's describing the psychology of inspiration, where you just feel completely entranced by an idea, and you lose yourself in what you're doing, and you feel thrilled by what you're doing. So they're, they're the trumpets that sing to battle and know not what they inspire. So poets inspire without knowing it, inspire others, but they themselves are blown into their trumpets, the gods or the muses or, or some kind of ecstatic experience is itself playing through them. The breath comes from outside into the trumpet that the poet is, and then the sound of the trumpet inspires everyone else. Shelley was a great Platonist. Shelley knew, Shelley's actually um, I thought about doing it, doing it, but then decided you'd bought enough books. But the first translation of the symposium into English is Shelley's. Um, he was the first person to translate the symposium. If you look for it, which of course you should, um, Shelley translated under the title The Banquet. Um, and it's a great translation. Um, first time um, that it ever appeared in English is Shelley's translation. He was a great Platonist. He understood Plato. Um, and he was thrilled by Plato, despite being a poet. He was thrilled by Plato. Um, how does this idea appear in the ion? There's a, there's a different metaphor or different simile that Socrates is, yeah. Well, I mean, just as far as how um, it affects Yeah, so that's something that Ion himself says. He says, I weep and they weep. Um, I laugh and they laugh. And then he says something which is a little bit troubling, which is, and then the funny thing is when they weep, I laugh because I know I'm going to make a lot of money. <laughs> um, but if they laugh, I get upset. Because um, they don't pay me. Yeah. Also, Socrates points out that he, he feels part of the story that he can't have any actual experience yeah. to war. Or... Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, and the one metaphor that he uses is the chain that comes down from the the inspiration comes from the gods and links to the, the poet who then links to the audience. Okay, so the important thing is what you learned in fourth grade, which is if you have a magnet and you put a paper clip on the magnet, the paper clip itself will transfer the magnetism to a paper clip below it. Do you all remember this? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's the links that he's talking about, that there's the inspiration, which is either Homer or whatever inspired Homer, and that becomes magnetic. And then the rhapsode is like a paperclip or a, a metal ring that is hanging from that original magnet and transfers the magnetism, somewhat attenuated but still transferred, to an audience. And so there's a chain of, of magnetizing power that goes from the original magnetic stone down to the audience members who are magnetized by it through mediations, but those mediations all participate in the magnetism of the original. So that's his image of inspiration in the ion. Ilana. You can make the paperclip magnetic itself. By rubbing it. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much they knew about that, but that he's not thinking about that. Um, he's not thinking about how to magnetize the paperclip. Um, although, boy, did that screw me up when we were learning electromagnetism in fourth grade. Um, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> Um, but it's simply about the fact that, that um, metal transfers magnetism, which is like the contagion um, of, of emotion that he's talking about in The Republic. Um, now, one, so one of the things that he's doing is undercutting the idea, and this is what we've gotten to so far, undercutting the idea that poetry is a skill. Um, and one way he undercuts it is to say, if poetry is a skill, you should be skillful in all different modes of poetry. Um, but he then undercuts a more ridiculous idea that Ion has, and yet somehow it's more important to Socrates to undercut this idea, which is what? It's not only Ion's skill as a poet that he undercuts. Yeah. Okay, so he undercuts his, his idea to interpret and understand what he's saying um, in the same way as the Apology, or is there something else in the Ion? So in other words, in the Apology, he says, um, poets often don't understand their own poems. Um, and uh, I found this really weird, that I could understand their poetry and what made it great better than they could. Um, but he says, he says more in the Ion about poets and the relation to what they're describing. Yeah. Um, Ion seems to believe that because Homer talks about like horsemanship and um, fighting and all sorts of skills, that his reciting the poem means that he understands them. Yeah. So Ion thinks that, sort of like readers of Tom Clancy, that by reading this literature, they become expert in the things that the literature talks about. You know, so anyone who reads Tom Clancy thinks that they could fight the war in Afghanistan better than Obama is doing it because Tom Clancy has taught them what the hardware is and how you win these battles. Um, Ion has a similar idea about horsemanship. So do you remember what, what, um, what Socrates quotes and says, is this good advice or not? Um, when Nestor tells his son to go close to the tongue and to loosen the reins on the uh -huh. horse. And, and where was that in the Iliad? Um, at the funeral. At the funeral games, yeah. So this is, that's, we, we looked a little bit at that scene. Um, and so Socrates quotes that. And um, again, there's something lovely about the fact that he's, um, he himself is quoting Homer to the great performer of Homer. Um, there's a similar moment in Hamlet 
um, when Hamlet says to the player who's arrived in Elsinore, he says, you once performed a play, I heard you speak it once, but not above once, because most people didn't like it, but I loved it. And there was one part of it I chiefly loved, see how everything comes together, Twas Aeneas's tale to Dido, and particularly there about where he tells of the coming of the horse, um, let me see, let me see, he tries to remember how it begins, and then he starts reciting. Um, the rugged Pyrrhus, like the Harkanian beast, and then he stops, and he says, no, it does begin with Pyrrhus. Oh, yes, the rugged Pyrrhus, he whose sable locks black as the night did the night resemble. And then he quotes about six lines, and Polonius says, for God, excellently well spoke. And Hamlet says, shut up, and says to the player, go, go from there, you recite it, you're so good. And then the player recites it. And then Hamlet says, I can't believe that he's weeping. He recites it, it's all a fiction, and he's weeping. What's Hecuba to him or him to her? He to her that he should weep for her. And look at me. My father's been murdered and I can do nothing. That's a platonic moment. Um, Shakespeare probably didn't get it directly out of Plato because no one was reading Plato, um, or almost no one was reading Plato in England at the time. But he got it out of people who read Plato, including Cicero. And it's a platonic moment. It's, look, here's a dream of fiction, and it causes him to weep, um, and that's ridiculous, and I, a real person, am unable to do anything about a real crime. Um, and it's a moment also where, like Socrates talking to Ion, Hamlet is quoting the very poetry that he is next to the expert quoter of. And then he asks that expert to actually do it. So now Socrates is doing that to Ion, and he quotes from the funeral games, which again tells you how important those were to art, you know, sort of sociologically, that gives us really good insight also, that those lines were lines that people knew. Um, maybe not to be or not to be, but, um, but important lines. Um, he starts quoting them, and Ion, of course, knows what he's quoting, knows them by heart, knows all of Homer by heart. And then he says, so, do you claim to be a really good horseman? Do you think this is good advice? And Ion isn't sure he's really prepared to say that, but he's sure he's a good general. Um, and again, you can see that this is something that goes back to the beginning of time. Everyone thinks that they would be a better military leader than that doofus who's losing the battle wherever they're losing the battle. If I were running the U.S. Army, I would make sure that blah, blah, blah. Um, so again, um, now of course Ion looks ridiculous when he claims all these things, that because he knows Homer, he knows all the things that Homer tells about, as though Homer knew all those things. And um, Socrates' whole point is, not only do you not know them, but what makes you think Homer knows them? And even if Homer did know them, you couldn't be the person who could say that he knew them or not. So I pause for, for an intro. I never do this, but I'll pause for an interesting parallel. Um, there's a great book by Norman MacLean. You probably know him as the author of A River Runs Through It. Um, um, his even greater book, Young Men and Fire, um, describes um, an incredible forest fire. Um, and has anyone read it? Um, incredible forest fire. Um, and the, the smoke jumpers who were killed in Montana fighting this fire. And the, the two or three of them who survived. Actually, there were three who survived. Um, and one of them survived by doing a really weird thing. The fire was coming at him at 40 miles an hour, just a huge wall of flame, and he was standing in a field of very dry grass. Um, and, it, and everyone else had been killed. 
And what he did was um, he had a match with him, and he lit the grass around him. And the grass burst into flame um, and then burned out. And he lay in the ashes of the grass, and the fire had nothing to burn. And it sort of went around him, but the ashes were already burnt, and he survived. And the other two people who survived who'd gotten over a ridge could not believe that he had lit a fire, that he was fighting fire with fire. They couldn't believe that he'd just done that. And he was actually put up on charges because they thought he'd made the fire worse. They claimed he made the fire worse. There's a long investigation, and he was finally exonerated. Um, and people, when he was exonerated, people said he invented this amazing new idea for how to get out of this situation in an emergency, which is to set a fire in order to protect yourself from fire. Um, that was incredible that he saw he had to do it, and he did it, and that's amazing. And then some people said, actually, you know what? It turns out that a similar thing happens in a James Fenimore Cooper novel written 100 years earlier. And that Cooper, as a writer, had come up with this idea. Um, this guy didn't read the novel, but it would be a better story if he did. Um, but the idea is that, yeah, there is this writer who did, did have this little bit of expertise about fighting fires, and he was right. Um, however you would actually have to be a firefighter to know that Cooper was right. Cooper's literary idea, maybe it was true, but you couldn't know it was true until an actual expert did it and found out that it was true. So that's what Homer is saying about generalship, charioteership, and so on, and Ion's claims to know them. Now the question is, and, and uh, we'll end with this, we'll talk about the cave and also about the symposium and also about Aristophanes on Tuesday. And you'll take your quiz and everything will become clear. Um, but the question is, why is Socrates so intent early and late, early and late, in dissing poets? Why is he against the poets? And the ion actually starts giving you an answer to that, which is that poetry seems to be the one competitor to philosophy for the title or for the claim of being able to talk about everything. If we want health, we don't go to the bricklayer because that's not what the bricklayer knows about. If we want a building, we don't go to the physician because that's not what the physician knows about. But poets and philosophers talk about bricklayers and physicians. And they have, they claim to have an all extensive knowledge about the world that everyone else only has skills in particular vocations within that. So what Socrates sees, he never says it. Because to make that competition obvious would also make it possible that he would be undercut. But what he sees and what Plato sees is that poetry and philosophy are competing for the same ground, which is they both want to be doctrines of everything. They both want to be the perspective on which you from which you should look at the whole world. Although, Ion's kind of at a disadvantage here because in any direct argument between a poet and a philosopher, the philosopher is going to win because that's what philosophy is about. Yeah, in a, in a direct, that's exactly right, in a direct argument. 
Um, on the other hand, Socrates does seem to have to concede this poetic idea of poetic inspiration. That is, that Ion is enraptured, which philosophically Socrates doesn't quite know how that works, but he kind of has to concede that it's happening. He has to give Ion that much. All right, um, see you on Tuesday. And again, it's almost like he proposed that.